Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. It's the Easter holiday weekend here in the UK. We got some some public holidays, so I hope people are able to try and enjoy those, even though we're in very straitened circumstances here. So try and spend some time with family, I hope, or or some time by yourself, which in my case sounds quite attractive. I spent plenty of time with family, I can tell you. Got my kids around the whole time at the moment, right, Zia? Certainly, yes. And they're pretty excited about the chocolate, the flow of chocolate that is about to engulf this house. I can't wait for some more chocolate. In the meantime, they're doing a lot of history. Doing a lot of history with your grandpa, aren't you, Zia? And I'm watching Horrible Histories. She's watching a lot of Horrible Histories. She's learnt more from Horrible Histories than she has from her dad. I'll tell you that much. Let's test your grandfather's history. Are you ready? Zia. Mm -hmm. Zia. What red-haired queen... Which king burnt the cakes that he was supposed to... King Alfred the Great. Name a castle built... Tower of London. How do you know what I was going to say? Because you asked me yesterday. What, built by William the Conqueror? Yeah. All right. My mum might have said Henry II. What have you said then? Dover. Have I told you that before? Nice. That's right. Nice work. What else happened at Dover? Remember what else happened at Dover? Who landed at Dover and jumped into the spraying foam, leading his comrades up the beach towards where the Britons were defending? Remember, I told that story hundreds of times. Julius Caesar. Oh, yeah. Remember? The guy jumped into the water. Oh, yeah. Come on, sharpen up, girl. Anyway, so... All right. <laughs> so this podcast is about Lord Byron. But it's actually not just about Byron. It's about his incredibly brilliant family and the wonderful historian Emily Brand, who's been on the podcast before, talking about love in the 18th century, is here talking about one of the most remarkable dynasties in uh, modern British history. She's going to tell us all about why Byron, why the apple did not fall far from the tree. There were heroes, there were villains, there were lovers, there were fighters. No one was boring in the Byron family. And obviously... Like me. Uh, like you. And uh, Well, actually, I was about to say, obviously the real hero of this piece is Byron's daughter. Ada. Oh. Ada, Ada remember, who, who was Ada Lovelace? Um, she was a person who invented a computer. And she was a mathematician. Pretty good. I'll give you that. So, this podcast is all about that. If you want to hear more podcasts, please go to historyhit.tv. It's my new history channel. There are hundreds of hours of history documentaries, hundreds and hundreds of podcasts, lots of great stuff on there. If you use the code POD1, P-O-D-1, you will get your first month for free and then you'll get the month after that for just one pound or euro or dollar. You're going to absolutely love it. There's plenty to watch on there. In the meantime, everyone, here's Emily Brand talking about Team Byron. So Ada Lovelace is Lord Byron's daughter. Good to have you back on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's so cool. This is a monster, a monster. Okay, I've heard of Byron. Yes. I didn't know about the whole dynasty. So what, what is no. the dynasty? Um, well, I think when most people think of Byron, um, yeah, absolutely. If, well, if they're not thinking of burgers, um, they are thinking of the poet because um, he was such a famous character in his own time, huge sort of rock star um, and uh, has this amazing um, reputation both for his writing and for his scandalous of exploits as well um, but I wanted to shift the gaze a little bit just backwards so my book starts um, two three generations before the poet um, so it's kind of a prequel really it's sort of the 1720 to 1798 which is when the poet inherits Newstead Abbey in Nottinghamshire um, as a ten-year-old boy and then um, 
yeah, it just traces them through wars, through revolutions, a lot of sex scandals, um, and yeah. Well, listen, it's like the Joker. It's like the Joker for Byron. It's the backstory. Listen, I'm going to ask you to do this. Let's go. Let's, let's get into it, right? Let's go. Let's start the start. Who is the who is the foul? Who do you start with? And also, I feel a bit bad you started someone because that means their dad was like super boring. Who who's dad? Who do you know? Like the first person you go, this is awesome. This guy's so dramatic and sex scandally. Yeah. That, but like, why did you not? There must have come a point. Where you go, no, he's really boring. Let's start here. Um, well, actually, it was uh, the very first thing that drew me into this whole story. Obviously, my my history. Uh, research history is in sort of love and sex and scandal. So the poet is obviously he was constantly intruding on that sort of thing. Um, but then, as a separate avenue into this book, um, I just I came across this portrait, a Thomas Gainsborough portrait of this woman, um, sort of thirty odd woman um, aristocrat, dated around seventeen sixty, and I just fell in love with it totally. And then when I was looking up information who this was, uh, it turned out she was a Byron. She was his. The poet's great aunt Isabella, so it was her that drew me into the story, actually. And then while I was sort of went down this rabbit hole of research, and I found out about her um, eldest brother, who was the fifth lord, and he was supposedly a wicked lord, and he was doing all these murders and all this business. And um, then the second brother had this amazing navy career and shipwrecked adventure, and I was just thought, I have to do something on these, a group biography on these three siblings. Um, there were two others, but they just weren't as interesting. But <laughs> so they, they don't yeah. feature so much. But um, so it, it was certainly these three amazing siblings that I just felt like I had to pull their stories together and tell it as one dynasty, really, a saga. Amazing. Okay, so we got the. Let's start with the. Let's start with the woman who you first. Uh, who was your entry point? What? What? Why was her life so interesting? Well, what first drew me was obviously this portrait, and she just looks. Oh, I don't know how to put it. She just sort of in intrigued me immediately. Oh, but that's games before you, man. I, I know. wish she painted me. I'd look intriguing, <laughs> even me. Um, yeah, well, she, she's just uh, she's sort of really gazing very directly out. She's gorgeous looking. She's got well, it looks like she's got lilac hair, which I just thought was great. It was a bit of you know pink and um, pastel coloured hair powder did exist in those days, so I do think she did go for a bit of a statement hairdo there. Um, but. There wasn't very much out, uh, out there about her at all, and so I had to start digging into proper archives without knowing if she was going to be interesting or not. Um, fortunately, there is a lot of her original correspondence to um, some of her friends and, crucially, to her second husband, who was this meticulous bloke who kept their correspondence over the course of ten years from them in this secret whirlwind engagement right through until they have this terrible separation and she's sort of refusing to sleep in the same bed as him and all this. So I was reading this correspondence and um, it just gripped me totally. But and you found that? I've never seen it published anywhere. That's so so cool. It was catalogued, which is how I um, came across oh it. Oh my God, you, that's like a trait. You must have been, that must be so, it's to Might see someone in the painting and then to realise that there's yes. a whole archive. Yes, and then um, she's got a bunch of stuff at Castle Howard as well, which was she became mistress of Castle Howard on marrying. So they've got a lot of, um, they've got the painting actually, and they've got a lot of her letters to her daughters as well. But she was just this brilliant, very headstrong, very romance-led woman. And I don't think you get that so often with 18th century women, where they're all sort of aristocrats anyway, where they're sort of uh, abiding by their etiquette and going to ballrooms and doing what they're told and marrying Mr. Darcy and all this sort of thing. 
but she was desperate to find true love and she was going off with men 15 years younger than her and uh, well below her rank and eventually she sort of elopes to the continent with a German con man soldier um, and tries to pass him off as an aristocrat very unsuccessfully um, and sort of lives in disgrace with the man that she loves so yeah you know she's not changing the world in the same way that maybe her brother John was but um, I just thought her story was great. You've done that thing that so many be wonderful historians are doing at the moment. You've just, you've just dug, you've just excavated an extraordinary, overlooked and forgotten female character from our history. It's, that's so exciting. I've been really, really pleased that I've been able to tell her story on an equal footing with her brothers. Because in the Byron, in the Byron family, you have these sort of great nicknames of the male characters and they've got all these traditions and myths that have risen around them but then um, Isabella tends to be totally forgotten or people will just say oh she was eccentric and that's it so it's been good to be able to figure out why people were saying that about her. So talk to me about her brothers then. Yes yeah, so um, I suppose her eldest brother um, he was a year younger than her William and he became the fifth Lord Byron and he in the course of the 1820s and 30s so we're talking after the poet's death, so long after William's death, he becomes the wicked lord and there's this legend of um, this old reclusive lunatic who lives at Newstead and refused to, refuses to see people and um, has done the occasional murder and tried to murder his wife and all of these things. Um, and you will find these stories at the beginning of most biographies of the poet, modern biographies of the poet as well. Um, the same sort of things rattled um, out about him. So I wanted to get to the heart of what of that was true. I was wondering if I could maybe rehabilitate him a little bit. Turns out, no, he was genuinely categorically awful, um, but he wasn't necessarily this sort of raving mad just murderer. Just really you know. unpleasant. Yeah, just a horrible dude, really. So these three siblings remind me, they are the poet's uncles and aunts. So you've got his grandfather, who's John, yeah. and then the eldest, elder brother is William, who is the fifth lord, mm. so that's the poet's great-uncle, and then Isabella is their sister, so it's his great-aunt. Right, okay. There is a family tree in the book, so okay, people... <laughs> okay, so we got, so we got the, the fifth lord is awful. Yes, pretty much awful, um, yes. and, and badly behaved in an interesting way, or just unpleasant? Well, at the beginning of his life, he, he, he's got a reputation by about the age of 25 for being a terrible coward and all his neighbours are sort of saying oh he's got a very sad character in everything is what one of his neighbours yeah. says um, but in a sort of cowardly embittered very entitled actually is what I mean to say an entitled way um, as he progresses through his life he's just can't control his spending he um, pursues an actress um, to the point of sexual harassment really he has a sort of abducted and tried to convince to sleep with him uh, loads of affairs um, and then the main uh, point in his life where he becomes most notorious is when he gets drunk at a Nottinghamshire club um, dinner and has a dispute a very boring dispute about sort of estate management with one of his neighbours and then he ends up stabbing him through the stomach and killing this guy that he's known all his life um, so he ends up on trial for murder at the House of Lords uh, in 1765. So then sort of the Byron name there gets attached to this does idea of duelling and villainy. And does he swing for it? He doesn't. There's, there's a real um, 
feeling that he might because five years earlier um, another lord has been that's happened to him for, for yeah. killing one of his servants. One of his servants, yeah. Um, in this case, he he manages to turn on the charm quite enough just to be able to sort of convince his lordly peers that uh, he, he didn't kill him on purpose, it was an accident. And um, also, he's got some quite high up relatives, sort of Lord of the Tower of London probably helps that he's got that those connections. So he essentially, he just gets a fine. Um, and gets sent home in a in a chair that day after he's acquitted. In a chair. Mm. Okay, so and then dies a horrible, lonely old man. Basically. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, what about the other brother? So the other brother is John. Um, his name he's gone down in history as Foulweather Jack Byron, and so he is the poet's grandfather. Um, and his is the only name and the only sort of legends that have risen up that I can trace to his actual lifetime, which I was really, really happy to be able to do because, you know, it proves that um, they weren't just all stories that were invented in the 19th century. But he went off to the Navy when he was 14. Um, and then when he was 16 to 17, he was involved in this amazing shipwreck um, just off the coast of South America. And then a subsequent five and a half year long journey of him trying to make his way up through Chile um, and then get back to England, um, encountering all these, er, anything that could go wrong goes wrong for him basically. Um, so he gets his first fame as a 22 year old when he gets home from that story. Hey, sleepyhead, why so sleepy? Oh, it's because your mattress is a bag of potatoes and scrap metal. You should try a Nectar mattress. With award-winning layers of comfort, you can sleep easy knowing you got incredible value. Mattresses start at just $499, and you get hundreds of dollars in accessories thrown in, as well as a 365-night home trial and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com. Best nickname I've ever come across in history, Foulweather Jack Byron. Yes, we've got Foulweather Jack, the Wicked Lord Byron, and then Mad Jack, who is the poet's father. But the Foulweather Jack is the only one I'm going to definitively say he had in his lifetime, because oh that's, that's the only... That's very cool. I've actually heard of that story, but I, and I knew it was a Byron, but I didn't know that that was um, a relative of, of the poet. How yeah, absolutely. And, and the poet was super proud of his granddad. Um, he never met him, the... Jack John died two years before the poet was born, so he didn't know him. But he, the story seeps into uh, Don Juan. There's a scene in Don Juan where the hero, it's just totally lifted. And it, the poet has to actually say something along the lines of, um, oh, his sufferings were comparative to those related in my granddad's narrative. He has to name check his granddad because otherwise everyone would know he's just stolen all the details. Um, so yeah, it was, there's a good link there. He was and very aware of that And he story. went on to become an admiral, did he? He did, yeah. Um, he rose steadily through sort of the ranks, I suppose. He, he, after he got back, he got married, had a bunch of children. His poor wife was just constantly left. Every time he went off on a voyage, she was always one month pregnant. So she mm -hmm. went through this on her own the whole time, every single time. Um, but he sort of distinguished himself in the Seven Years' War and... Um, then was promoted to, I think it was Rear Admiral, just before the American Revolution breaks out. Um, and so he's sort of sent off to play his part. Quite disappointing part in that war as well for him, 
um, and that was where we can trace his name Foulweather Jack to because every time he tries to sort of pursue this French fleet the storm yeah. gets him. Don't talk to me about those storms. We'd still be we'd still be, still be one big happy family. I remember the bad weather so? of the American okay. War. Well, oh, kind of. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, okay, so then he has a son, Jack, mm-hmm. who's who's mad. He is called Mad Jack, and we we we, uh, we have one likely very unreliable print of him, um, and this is sort of the first time he, from the first time when he explodes into the public scene, and that's because he's having an affair with a married. Marchioness, um, and all the newspapers are gossiping about it, and and he gets a special sex scandal column in one of the um, magazines of the time. But he's had he's, his dad's been absent a lot when he was growing up. I feel a bit sorry for him already. Um, I I was looking at this. He was he was away for some of the time, but most of the time there's good two three year chunks where he's stationed in Plymouth, which is just down the road. So I think it's been he's been framed as this absent father, but I think most of the time he's probably. Maybe he d- unless he just didn't go home. I'm so sure. mad, possibly. So mad Jack is um, making a name for himself in all the wrong ways. Yeah, yeah. He's he's from a very young age. Um, I think as a teenager, he's convincing his dad to let him have bits of inheritance early, and then going off and spending it on swords and new jackets and stuff like that. So he um, he knows what he's after in his life, and and it's very quickly gambling and women and. Uh, I won't say he's mad, but he, he wasn't great either. <laughs> I want to say the George Best and the rest of it he wasted. But anyway. <laughs> um, uh, and so, uh, what? How does he grow up to? How does he? He has the poet at some stage, does he? Yeah. So he has this first marriage. Actually, this first affair um, is so public, um, and this uh, lady Carmarthen, who he has an affair with, falls pregnant. She confesses to her husband, Lord Carmarthen, and he obviously throws her out. So these two quickly get married. Um, I think she's eight plus months pregnant at this point. Which is that unusual married. in Georgian society that there'd be an, would it, an actual divorce and then a remarriage? It's it would certainly have been very expensive. So I think, I don't know, I'm not sure um, why Amelia, Lady Carmarthen, would quite have done that unless she was just besotted with Jack and felt like she had to be with this man. They've been having an affair for a few months. Um, by all accounts, they were having a great time <laughs> as it came out in the sort of court case about it. Um, do, you have, do you get details in the court case? Yes, so it's all transcribed. It's brilliant. It's all these tales. The servants are giving their testimony, testimony, and it's all uh, you know. We heard them giggling behind the closed door, and when we went in, the sheets were very much tumbled, and we've seen him creeping around the house with no breeches on and all this sort right, of thing. Right, well, that's pretty. It's brilliant. That's a that's a smoking gun. It's damning. It's very damning. And um, so they get married. So they get married. They have three children, um, of whom just one survives, and this is Augusta. And she's a very big figure in the poet's life later on. Um, and then Amelia dies a year after that. Um, Jack sort of rocks around, spending money. Um, he's done all right after this marriage because she was very rich and he's got some of that, uh, or has benefited from that at least. Um, he goes off to France. He stays with his Aunt Isabella, who's my Gainsborough portrait lady, um, gets some money out of her, spends that. I think that she convinces him to go back to Bath, to England, to find a new wife, which is what he does. Um, he goes to the assembly rooms of Bath and uh, very fashionable society of the time, and there he finds Catherine Gordon, who's a Scottish heiress, and this is the poet's mother. And within a matter of weeks, she's totally seduced. Um, they get married in Bath, they don't even leave, um, and then the poet is born about three years after that. 
Um, he abandons them fairly quickly. Uh, when the poet's two and a half, he, he leaves. Uh, money problems, again, he's spent all of her fortune. Um, has a bit of an incestuous affair with his sister in France while he's living there, and then he dies. He has an affair with his sister in France? Yes, so it's, it's a bit of a weird parallel in that obviously one of the things that the poet was most notorious for was having a sexual relationship with his half-sister, Augusta, um, Jack's daughter, but uh, there's a lot of correspondence, it's at the Bodleian Library, and um, it is all of Jack's correspondence to his elder sister, Fanny Lee, um, sort of, it's very hard not to come to the conclusion that they, they were having a, um, a sexual relationship, unless he was just being a total weirdo in every letter that he wrote to her, but it's all full of, you are the most handsome woman I've ever known and it makes me so mad that you are my sister. Um, I, he gives tales of all these women that he's having sex with, um, courtesans and actresses and all of this, but then he'll s make some really inappropriate comment like, um, I, I have been with all these women, but whenever I do anything extraordinary, underlined, I always think of you. So it's very much like... Wow. <laughs> a bit grim reading, really. Um, but his letters, they're always sexually charged, always really inappropriate. Um, so yeah, it seems that while they were in France, if not before, because they could have been doing this their whole lives and just the letters don't exist, um, don't survive. So that's a grim end wow. to, to uh, his uh, story. Really, okay, so. and so then the poet comes of age. Yeah. And w uh, is the poet's reputation for sort of sexual licence and adventure. I mean, wh wh what elements of, of, of his reputation do you think are fair? Probably most of them. <laughs> <laughs> I would say so. I think, I think we've got such an amazing um, sort of survival rate of his letters. He was a prolific letter writer, um, and I'm sure there are many that haven't survived, but there are so many left, and it's, you can see in them how he's presenting himself to different people and with different stories, and sometimes he just can't help but reveal a little bit too much about some affair that he's had with some woman. Um, when he was at Cambridge at university, he and his friends had the sort of coded language for their um, uh, sexual relationships with boys as well. So the sort of um, homosexual code kind of thing that they had for them. So it, it runs through his life and um, he was gen generally <laughs> Here's the, uh, th this the, big, the big question that we always ask us about Georgian but also Victorian society is like what is, what it, it, to what extent is this family unusual, yeah. uh, to what extent are the kind of superficial um, customs that seem to govern social interactions in, within the aristocracy, within the, just a sort of front for like, like you know, savage boozing and shagging, like what, what's the, what, what do you think, do you think this family that you've managed to track is actually had something weird going on or do you think they were just they were pretty normal? Mm, I think um, with the poet himself obviously loads of attention is drawn to it because he's such a public figure and because he relished it so much he liked to sort of be this enigmatic character coming into a ballroom and all the ladies start swooning because you know they wish that he would ruin their reputation sort of thing. Um, with his ancestors it, it was a, a self-professed era of boardiness and boozing and all, all that as you say but they do come up with weird regularity in sort of these sex scandal columns so Fowler the Jack who's otherwise 
from oh, not foul weather. from this perspective uh, is other you know he's quite the gallant character but he he turns up in this sex scandal column and everything's laid bare about his affair with a teenage chambermaid when he's in his mid 50s right okay. so there's no there's no right proper goodies and baddies here they're all sort of um, getting involved well, there is maybe one goodie who was Byron's daughter well, this is true. She didn't have to put up with any of <laughs> any of their nonsense, probably. Yeah. <laughs> and so, I mean, it's probably beyond the range of your book, I guess. It is. So, so my book, um, the poet kind of frames it, um, but it is the pre prequel to his life, and he turns up in 1798, and for the most part, that's the end, the end of the book. But of course, these are all Ada's yeah. relatives these as well. These are all Ada so Lovelace. So, for mm -hmm. everyone who doesn't know, who was the possibly the first world's first computer programmer. Mm -hmm. She came yeah, up with the remarkable. idea. Yeah, amazing. What a family. They're great. I love them. I'm so glad to be able to tell their story in this way, f I think, for the first time. I mean, it's been done, sort of, there's been academic studies and there's been 2,000 year long genealogical studies, but this is really getting to the nitty gritty of how they viewed the century and um, lots of things that haven't been revealed before. So. As someone who's obsessed with the 18th century, this sounds like a must read. It's just a completely different take on it and it's a lovely, lovely way through the, the century. Thank you. <laughs> the book is called? It's called The Fall of the House of Byron. It's drama. It sounds dramatic. It does. Was <laughs> it a fall? Was it because I guess they were, they were they rich and then by the they time... They were the fine. At the beginning actually, the fourth lord, they were they were... They weren't wildly wealthy, but the fourth lord um, had made Newstead this amazing mansion. It was very much admired. He'd been sort of a careful, cautious money keeper. So when the fifth lord inherits at 13, he's got a decent enough fortune. He runs through the whole thing and more. Um, and then, you know, by the end of the century, Newstead is literally a ruin because he's not been able to afford to afford the upkeep for it so cool well you know um it's the fall of the house of byron but um it must have been a hell of a ride <laughs> thank you very much for coming on the podcast thank you i hope you enjoyed the podcast just before you go bit of a favor to ask i totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money makes sense but if you could just do me a favor it's for free go to itunes or wherever you get your podcast if you give it a five star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review purge yourself give it a glowing review i'd really appreciate that it's tough world out there law of the jungle out there and i need all the fire support i can get so that will boost it up the charts it's so tiresome but if you could do it i'd be very very grateful thank you